you take your seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word this morning to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. For those officers who are already serving, whether here at this church or in other congregations, sermon is very specifically for you. If you're sitting there thinking, it's almost like he's talking to us. I, I am. But for those gentlemen who are coming on to uh, the office of elder and deacon in this church this morning, I am definitely speaking to you. And if you are a member of this congregation or you're visiting from another, guess what? I am speaking to you as well. This is a text that doesn't always get a lot of attention. It doesn't get a whole lot of press. And I, can, I could not think of a better text that we need to take some time and to listen to the Lord as he speaks to us from Ezekiel 34. The title this morning is Caring for the Flock, Not Fleecing It. Caring for the Flock not fleecing it. Ezekiel 34, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Oh, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered all over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or to seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely, because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep. But the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. 
There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet? And drink what you have muddied with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And the earth shall yield its increase. And they shall be secure in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord. When I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them. They shall no more be a prey to the nations. Nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. I will provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture. And I am your God, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear this morning. Give us eyes to see. There are many distractions that we bring into this place. There are many distractions that just crept into our hearts as we heard these very difficult words and yet also We are reminded here of your amazing promise that you have fulfilled for us in Jesus Christ. And so indeed, open our hearts to you afresh this morning, that in seeing and savoring Christ here in Ezekiel 34, we might be more prepared and more willing and able to follow Christ, whether serving him as an officer serving him as a disciple. 
in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. was indeed what many were referring to as the darkest hour. The darkest hour. Not many people know where the phrase originated. Many, when you hear the phrase, the darkest hour, probably think immediately of Winston Churchill, as you should, because he definitely made it popular. But we don't really know where it came from, but it is an extremely apt description of what the people who were living in England were facing. Germany had uh, executed this brilliant blitzkrieg move across Western Europe. And they had completely wiped out France, they had wiped out Belgium, and one after another, Western nations within Europe were falling to Hitler. But more than that, Now on the Eastern Front, Hitler was pressing into Russia. And he was once again moving very quickly and having a lot of success. And the people in England who did have a a bit of security because of the English Channel were now faced with the reality of we know Hitler is going to try to come here. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? What you see in in response to this dire situation that is very aptly described as the darkest hour, you see the amazing influence, the powerful influence that leadership has over a people. But that is almost, no, it is. That's not precise. You see, it was the powerful reality of leadership that had gotten the allied powers into the darkest hour. One of the reasons that Hitler was able to move so quickly and have so much success is because the leadership within Western Europe did not want to fight. So they tried to talk. They tried to appease. They gave Hitler things thinking if we give him this, he'll be satisfied. And it was bad leadership that led to the darkest hour to begin with because the leaders had not rallied their people to see the situation, to understand the dangers, and to be prepared to respond appropriately. But in that darkest hour, you also see the powerful influence of leadership as Winston Churchill delivered one of the most famous speeches that rallied the English people and beyond the English people. It it rallied the allied troops to stand firm, to renew a resolve, to sacrifice what was needed in order to fight for the good. 
In this speech, as, as he comes to the end, as he is trying to pluck up the resolve, he says, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. He says it so much better than I do, by the way. But it's the end of the speech. And if, if with I, I not for a moment believe this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving. Then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time the new world with all its power and might steps forth to, to the rescue and to the liberation of the old. The darkest hour, even in that darkest hour, for Winston Churchill, there was still light. And what he did in the execution of his leadership of that people was to point them to that light. We look at Ezekiel 34, it is the darkest hour for Judah. At this point in the history of God's people in the Old Testament, the, the nation that God had redeemed out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, the nation that he had safely shepherded uh, through the desert wilderness in order to bring them to himself at Mount Sinai, in order to give them his word, in order to feed them, in order to provide them everything that they needed to be his people. He then shepherded, even as they rebelled, he shepherded them for 40 years through a desert and he brought them to a promised land. But the heritage did not last. Eventually, this one people would be divided into two kingdoms, the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes. The northern uh, ten tribes being called Israel, the southern two tribes being called Judah. At the point in which Ezekiel is receiving this prophecy from the Lord, Ezekiel uh, is living somewhere around the year 597 B.C. And at this point, the northern ten tribes, the northern nation of Israel, has already been captured. It has already been decimated. The southern kingdom has held on. But now, in 597 B.C., the southern kingdom is under the threat of Babylon. In fact, Babylon had been sending these waves of encroachments into the land, and they would come in, and they would, they would pillage, and they would steal, and they would even take people and take those people back to Babylon with them. And that is where Ezekiel is writing from. He has been captured. And he has been taken to Babylon. He's no longer living in his land. He's no longer living in the promised land. And God provides him what he and what the faithful remnant of God need. Because as bad as things have been up to this point, they are about to get much worse. In just 10 years, 
Babylon will finally and ultimately completely destroy Jerusalem. For the temple itself will be utterly and completely destroyed. What do the people of God, the faithful remnant looking to God even in this darkest hour, what do they need? They need And the the prophecy of Ezekiel is a prophecy in order to instill hope in God's people. That even though things are about to get really bad, God's purposes for his people are not over. God will reveal to Ezekiel the glory of his rule as pictured uh, rising up out of the temple and leaving and departing the nation. Because God himself is the one that is bringing Babylon into the promised land. Because where where Judah had decided they did not want to be God's servant, God chose Babylon to serve him in bringing judgment on his people that had abandoned, had rebelled, and had embraced the false gods of the nation. And what is transpiring is the direct result of God being faithful to do what he promised to do in Deuteronomy if his people abandoned, rebelled, and embraced the false gods of the nations. He promised that I will judge you and I will send you into exile. And that is what is happening. But as Ezekiel 34 is unfolding for us here, Ezekiel uh, 33 begins the portion of Ezekiel where God begins to unfold the hope that is still present for God's people. And, And you see that put on display here in Ezekiel 34 as God reveals the problem that has led to the the darkest hour, but as he also reveals the promise of the light that is still yet to come. The problem that is unfolded here for us in Ezekiel 34 is a problem of leadership. Leadership in, uh, in Judah had led to a problem within the people of Judah. The leadership is described here as shepherds. Now, some will argue that the use of the metaphor shepherd here should only apply to the idea of king, um, but others will argue that it applies for leadership across the board, and that's the position that I take. That in the nation of Judah, that God had revealed a structure that his people were living under, a structure of authority that definitely had kingly representation, It had prophetic representation. It had priestly representation. It also had uh, the heads of tribes uh, as as being something similar to small governors and heads of families. And there was this authority structure throughout the nation of Judah that its structure was meant to shepherd God's people to live out their unique calling and privilege as the redeemed people of the one true God. God used kings and prophets and priests 
and all the different governors, all this, he used as a way to encourage the people to live up to their identity. You are the redeemed people. You are the people who have received the covenants and the promises. You are the people who have the unique privilege of having me dwell in your presence. And what they were to do with that as the people of God was they were to respond to this grace of God in worship, they were to respond in discipleship, and they were to respond in mission. They were to worship as the people who have been redeemed from Egypt. They were to worship as the people who knew what the problem was between them and God. It was their own sin. They were to worship as those who knew what God's provision was for that sin, and that was the blood of the sacrifices. They had everything that they needed from God, even as sinners, to be able to live and to dwell with him and to glorify and enjoy him as they would worship and praise and sing and pray and live lives to his glory. Kings and prophets and priests, they were meant to help the people live up to that. They were to live as those who were devoted to the Lord so that in their daily vocations, their lives would be expressions of who God is as God had revealed it in his Torah. They were to be a people who embodied the very law and the very revelation of God himself. And so they were to be a people who were to be a people who were just. They were to be a people who were supposed to be humble. They were to be a people who were supposed to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and love their neighbor as themselves. They were to embody all the attributes of what we call in theology the communicable attributes of God. His love his mercy, his grace, his his justice, his goodness, his kindness. All of these things were to be embodied in the people of God and the kings and the prophets and the priests. They were called to help the people up that. The very existence of of Judah, the very existence in in the land was a declaration of the gracious redemption of the one true God. And so their very existence as they lived with God and as they embodied the truth and the goodness and the beauty of God to the watching world, it was for the purpose of fulfilling a mission that God had to save some from every tribe, tongue, and nation, to draw people from throughout the nations, to draw them out of their sin and to bring them into life, to bring them into fellowship, into union and communion with the triune God. Their very existence was mission. And yet, what had they done? They had chosen the gods of the nations instead of the God who had redeemed them. Guess who was supposed to help the people of God live out their mission? Prophets, the priests, and the kings. But what we know of the prophets, the priests, and the kings is that they had all, they had all, except for a couple of kings. At this point in the history of Judah, they had all let go of what they were supposed to be doing. And the people did not want the few that had remained faithful. The people, 
the kings themselves, what they wanted was a prophet who would come and say good things. What they wanted was a prophet who would come and say, peace, peace, when there was no peace. What they wanted was to hear, okay, yeah, Babylon's had a couple successes, but that's the end. We're going to go back to normal. What they wanted to hear was that everything was, was just fine. And if a prophet came, sent by God, and said something that they didn't want to hear, they rejected. They didn't listen, and often they killed. They didn't want to hear from God. They wanted to hear from someone claiming to speak on behalf of God because that prophet would speak what they wanted to hear. Kings themselves often were leading the way in injustice in the abuse of money, in the abuse of power, in the abuse of the provisions of God. And instead of having an individual copy of the Torah for themselves that they were to read, that they were to meditate upon, and that they were to live out in front of the people in order to lead, lead the people to live out God's word, instead the Torah got lost. Because not even the king had his own personal copy anymore like he to, because the king wasn't always that interested in doing things according to what God had said, because that required trust. It required faith. They were surrounded by these huge superpowers, and they were this little blip of a country, a little blip of a nation. They were grazing ground that the superpowers used as they went north and south in order to fight one another. And the land of Judah was always in jeopardy because of that. From an earthly perspective, if you're looking at things through politics and military. And often the kings, that is how they chose to look at it. And so they would try to set up partnerships with different superpowers. And, and then often they themselves wouldn't be faithful to the, to the covenants that they made with these different nations. God said, why are you looking to these nations when I'm the one who brought you out of bondage and slavery in Egypt? Priests often at this point in the, were, not, were not leading temple worship. They were not uh, carrying out the sacrifices as God had communicated them. They often would only do it if you paid them extra money or if you gave them an extra benefit. I can go on, but I think you're getting the picture. The very thing that Samuel warned the people of had come to pass. Remember when they went to Samuel? They said, we want to have a king like the nations have. And Samuel got mad. Samuel goes to God. He prays about it. And God says, look, I, look, I'm not surprised. I knew this was coming. And they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They don't want me as king. So let them have what they want. And they got Saul. And then they got a history for the overwhelming majority of their kings were not good kings. 
And the danger that Samuel says is if you get a king like the nations, that king is going to take stuff from you. He's going to call it taxes, but he's going to take your stuff. He's going to make you join his army and fight for him. And, and your sons are going to die for this guy. And he goes through and talks about all the dangers that are going to come if they have a king like the nations. Well, what happened was not only did they get a king like the nations, the kings embodied the ethics of the gods of those nations. The Gentile nations at, their t- at that time had a worldview where they had a multiplicity of gods. And that multiplicity of gods existed and had created huma- uh, humankind to exist so that humans would be their slaves, so that humans would do all the difficult stuff that the gods didn't want to do. They wanted to play. They wanted to have fun. They wanted to indulge in immorality and all those kinds of things. And so humankind was developed to be their slaves so that they could engage in those things. And the ethics of the gods of the nations were an ethic that was not an objective standard of justice. It was an ethic of whoever is king and has the power to enforce his will, what he says is justice is justice. There was no standard that could be used to judge a king in those days. The king was a standard unto himself. And what you see in the life of Judah at this time is that their kings, the the prophets, the priests, they had taken on the ethics. They had taken on the existence of the gods whom they were worshiping. By the way, David tells us that this would happen in Psalm 115 says you become what you worship and that's what has happened powerful influence of leadership within this nation as they not only engaged in false worship but became what they worshiped not only did they rebel not only did they reject god not only did they leave god's worship his discipleship, and his mission behind, they led the people to follow. And so in Ezekiel 34, not only does God say there's a problem with the leadership, he says there's a problem with the church. The church is full of of some sheep, but also some rams and some goats. And not only are the leaders abusing the sheep, guess what? Sheep are abusing sheep. And so the problem here is that when you engage in false worship, whether you are leadership or whether you are one of the followers, you become what you worship. And the problem here was that there was bad leadership and there was bad followership. That's a pretty big problem. But within this, God then gives an amazing, incomprehensible promise. I, I myself will come and shepherd my people. I, I myself will come and be my people's king. I, I myself will come and be my people's prophet. I, I myself will come and be my people's priest. And I will be what the leadership of Israel, what the leadership of Judah, what it could never have been anyway. I will be the righteous king. 
I will be the just king. I will be the merciful king. I will know when to employ my justice. I will know when to employ my mercy. And I will know when to employ everything in between. I will be the embodiment of my Torah for my people. I will be the embodiment of my worship for my people. I will become the embodiment of the discipleship for my people. I will come and embody the mission of my people. I I myself be my people's shepherd. And I am going to raise up and make strong those who are weak, and I am going to bring down and weaken those who are strong in and of themselves. I'm going to correct the injustices, and I'm going to bring about the mercy and compassion that is needed. I will reestablish the rule that is needed for my people so that they can live up to their identity of a redeemed people who exist to worship, to be disciples, to engage in mission. Then he makes what some see as a contradictory statement. He just says, I'm going to come and I'm going to be the shepherd for my people. But then he says, but I'm, I'm going to give, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you David. Well, hold up. Are you going to come be a shepherd? Or is David going to be the shepherd? Hold up, hold up, hold up. This is 597. David's been dead for quite a while at this point. How are you going to be our shepherd, but also David be our shepherd, especially when David isn't alive? How is this promise, how is this going to come to pass? What we know, what we have just celebrated through this time of, of Advent as we have reflected upon the God who would be made man. We reflected on the one who was not just born, but who was born in the city of David, who was born of the lineage of David. For the covenant of peace that God would make with his people, which here in Ezekiel 34, it's another way of introducing what we refer to as the new covenant. A new covenant that came when Jesus came. And when he embodied the law of God, where he was the embodiment of the Torah, where his life was an expression of the existence of God, where his life was a manifestation of the justice of God, where his life was, was a reflection of the mercy of God, and as he had the wisdom to know when to exercise what and how to respond to the different situations that he faced, and he did so perfectly every step of the way as the one who came, who was not just a representative of God like David was, who was God himself. As God became man. And as the New Testament unfolds for us, that in God becoming man in Jesus Christ, that Jesus came and he was the king that was better than David. He was the prophet that was better than Moses. He was the priest who was better than Aaron. Where in one man, a God-man, all of the leadership needed for God's people was embodied. 
See, what God is promising here in the darkest hour of Judah is a light that is coming. As a God, man, king, prophet, priest, when the good shepherd himself would come in order to shepherd God's people once and forevermore into the green pastures as one who would first go through the valley of the shadow of death. You see, when the throne in Ezekiel, when that glory of God enthroned, when it rises up out of the temple and it departs from Jerusalem, we're told that it goes east. And where were God's people going into exile? They were going east into Babylon. So the God who would, who would judge his people, the God who would pronounce this judgment on his people would be a God who would also go with them into his own judgment. Beloved, the cross is so put on display before us here. As the God-man came, as the perfect, the perfect good shepherd who was the prophet, priest, and king that we needed, and yet who in fulfilling his mission did so by, by becoming sin for us, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. What does that have to do with today? With Christ, as the crucified and risen Lord, the God-man who serves eternally as our prophet, priest, and king is continuing his mission, and he continues that mission in and through his church here on earth. And what you as God's people need is you continue to need the rule of God set before you so that the people of God might embody God's justice. And what you need is to have the mercy of God set before you so that God through you might continue to manifest his compassion. Now, if you want some help going to sleep tonight, you can read the Book of Church Order for the PCA online. Read chapters 8 and chapters 9. Chapter 8 is on elders. Chapter 9 is on deacons. And guess what our book of church order says the elders of the church are to be and to do. They are representatives of the rule of Jesus Christ to his church who have the amazing and scary privilege of governing Christ's church in the name of Jesus Christ. When we ordain and install uh, these men moments from now and as hands are laid upon them, what is happening is the authority of Jesus Christ is being bestowed upon these men. And those who are being ordained and installed as elders, what they are being uh, given in the gift of the laying on of hands of, of the presbyters, what is being given is the authority to govern on behalf of Jesus Christ. But guess what? That is not an authority that gives them carte blanche power to make you do what they think you should do. 
is an authority that only extends so far as God's word. Where they have the privilege of speaking on behalf of Christ, but the words they are to speak are the words that Christ has embodied and has revealed in his scripture. But beloved, when they speak, and when they are speaking from scripture into your life, make no mistake, Christ is speaking to you. But God gives us not only that gift of, of having representation of his rule, he also has given us an office that represents his mercy and his compassion. And so when you read chapter 9 on deacons, what you will read is that the office of deacon has been provided in order to manifest the ongoing mercy and service of Christ. And the men who are being ordained and installed as deacon make no mistake they, too, through the laying on of hands of the presbyters, are being granted the authority of Jesus Christ to lead you in the development of your gifts so that you will engage in, 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 in serving the Lord through your time, your treasures, and your talents. And make no mistake, when these men speak from Scripture uh, in leading us in manifesting the mercy, compassion, and service of Christ. Christ is speaking to us through them. Deacons are not junior varsity. Deacons represent what the elders are not burdened to represent. Because guess what? None of us are Jesus Christ. And none of us can embody in one person, that perfect king, prophet, priest that you need. The Lord has been gracious in dividing this labor up between these offices of elder and of deacon. And what we are engaging here moments from now is an enactment of this ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ as not only your crucified, but your risen Lord and Savior. And men, those who are already ordained, those who are already serving, those who are coming on board, remember the words of Christ that you are not to carry out authority the same way that the nations carry out. But he tells you, if you are going to be first, then you must be last. Authority in the church is not exercised through a harsh engagement of throwing that authority in people's faces, requiring things of them that God does not require, putting upon them burdens that he has lifted, the role you have is to set before them the Savior who served in humility, the Savior who served in dying. And it is in carrying out your office as a representative of Christ that you represent that Christ to this church so that we might continue to learn and to grow 
and become the redeemed people of God in Jesus Christ, who have been granted a new identity through which we are now worshipers, disciples, and on mission with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Men, embrace the humility of Christ that you may shine as an example of the Christ who still lives, the Christ who is still serving, the Christ who is accomplishing his purposes in you, but also through you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you did not leave us to the deficiencies, to the sins, to the abuse of human rulers, that you have granted us your Son, Jesus Christ, So, Lord, help us to cultivate a a pleasure in him, to cultivate a reverence for him, to cultivate who, who we are in him, that we might be a people actively engaging in your worship, that we be a people actively living out our daily lives as your disciples, where through the daily living of devotion to you, a devotion embodied in an attempt to obey, a devotion embodied in repentance when we don't, a devotion embodied in the celebration of the righteousness granted and imputed by faith. Our obedience cannot get us anything, but it's just an expression of our gratitude. As we engage in these things, in the daily activities and vocations that we have as your people, bless them that we might indeed be a people of worship, discipleship, and mission. For this is your purpose for us. These are your purposes for the leaders that you put over us, for the leaders that you place under us, and for we as your people who are perfectly encircled by the protection of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where no one can snatch us out of your hands. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.